0: Hello and welcome to Of Poetry Podcast, episode 31, with Kaylin Ernest. Kaylin Ernest is a poet and a performer. They are the author of two forthcoming collections, Night Mode and Iconoclast, being published in 2023 and 2024, respectively, by Everybody Press. They receive their MFA in writing from Pratt Institute. They are a publicist at Grey Wolf Press. They live in Brooklyn with their cat named Salad. Hello and welcome, Kaylin.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So excited for our conversation today. And, um, you know, to talk about two books from a press that I just really recently um, been introduced to myself, Everybody Press, I'm so impressed with their work. Would you like to open us with a poem?
1: Yeah, I would be happy to. So the poem I picked is actually the second poem, which is from my debut collection. Um, it's called Somewhere a Cyborg is Taking Note of the Event That Will Transform It. Somewhere an event is happening. Somewhere a cyborg is taking note. Somewhere a cyborg is being transformed by the event. A night out is subliminal for the cyborg. A party temporarily disrupts the signals radiating between all selves, no matter how urgent the frequency. The cyborg knows it's easier to dissuade a potential threat by obscuring the ruptures that mark all impending transformations. The difference between a cyborg and a bot is easy. I stare at myself for increments of time, wanting to transcend all layers of skin surrounding the machinery. How a container keeps an object within it, entrapping it. Contextually, each version of a self is constructed and subsequently mitigated somewhere in its compulsion for encounter. An attachment to the making of image imprints its impressionable witness. When I meet you off the grid in this techie epoch, it is digital deviancy. When I see you at the party, a bolt, a smoke screen backdropping the room in thick clouds of chemistry. We exchange fine particles and I wear this skin like the very first time. When you take me by my hardware on the dance floor, our algorithms rumble, matching the synthesized rhythms that surround us. My code, our makeup, a mutation occurs in my body. I do not make myself small beneath it. Input structure, displace a warning to a former self. Get in line, or face analog walls, broadcasting this message a little too loudly. You feel the possibility as it becomes palpable. All fictions come surging to the surface. Here, a cyborg identifies its code is a marginal relation. Perhaps what connects a cyborg and a bot is a devotion to making fiction in the spaces between. In the time it takes to get from the city back to Brooklyn, I play a guessing game of which bodies in the cart, cyborg, bot, are currently in process of being loved Perhaps love is the most inexhaustible resource. Perhaps love is the truest fiction.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Incredible poem.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: And it really takes its space and its time. Um, and I love that. And I guess I was thinking about it in sections. Um but like the way the way the text falls like at the the lower third of the page. Yeah, I think it's like it's unsettling in a really good way that it, it kind of like say you know it's it's a different kind of logic, right? There's a different logic going on in the poem. Yeah let's talk about let's talk about cyborgs.
1: Let's talk about cyborgs. I'm ready.
0: <laughs> good. <laughs> good. Um I mean I was thinking of Blade Runner some um I was thinking about some of the work in philosophy with um the human and the not human right and um how do you you know when is something a machine is when is something a human and and I think a lot of that hinges on acts of faith um Mm -hmm. in terms of how we receive others and the other and yeah um and we mentioned right before we started recording um you mentioned that film is an inspiration behind behind this book in in multiple ways is is there a film or kind of a text that you're thinking of here
1: yeah absolutely i mean blade runner is really spot on actually and i hadn't seen it i Mm -hmm. I saw the newest one rather with my partner fairly recently while i was completing the edits for this and so much of the, this project in general is this world building that's sort of happening. And I was thinking a little bit about a speculative, dystopia, sci-fi. Yes. Um, these are all things I'm kind of thinking about in retrospect now that the manuscript is completed a little mm-hmm. bit, um, which is really interesting because I think while I was writing it, I was thinking a lot more about narrative and plot and sort of the formal constraints and seriality. Um, mm-hmm. One text I was thinking of was Proxy by R. Erica Doyle which completely radically transformed how I understood what poetry is and can do, um, especially how empty space or white space on the page can be utilized, um, perhaps just as much as the text, which you so graciously pointed out about this poem. It's This poem is all in the lower third. It has a lot of space and movement in it. Um, it's supposed to kind of feel like organic code, but also a little bit inorganic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's this there's this conceptualizing in this world building that is this movement between the digital and the IRL and how to make both feel both organic and fleshy and meaty and visceral um, while still kind of creating a binary between the two and forging a space for fluidity between how to oscillate between the two.
0: That's great. Um, I'm so glad you brought up world building and speculative um, Speculative creating, because I recently did a little like apocalyptic community formation book list on, on on Twitter. Like just thinking about books, I'm so interested in what community formation means for us now, and something it you know it's it's not it's kind of like our our apocalyptic future or our you know present or um, and so yeah, I think that that work that you're doing here is, is absolutely part of that. And I think it's especially pertinent to like queer poetics and, um, queer community formations, which are, you know, outside so often outside or in relationship to, but in interesting ways, um, kind of societal conventions for family or whatever, your friends, Mm. or, um, when you're, there's something very too. Um, it feels very code-like. It feels very, and of course you're you're giving us that language, right? Um, the analog walls broadcasting the message a little too loudly, and you've got this kind of like matrixy feel um, to the poem. But then when it kind of narrows down to those those final two lines that have their own page, well, they're broken lines that have their own pages. Um, perhaps love. Is the most inexhaustible resource. And then perhaps love is the truest fiction. And when I said faith, I was like, maybe, maybe like the faith and the fiction are mm-hmm. the same thing that you could not transpose, but swap those two or or they, they're in relationship to each other. Um that like we need these fictions with each other, and that fictions is also fictions are also part of our survival. Mm-hmm. Um, both in how we create and how we live with each other. Yeah, and I'm still thinking about this, that there's there's definitely kind of fictions or faith we need to get through the day.
1: Yes, absolutely. And- I mean, I think with fiction and in, in thinking about this project, but also beyond thinking about kind of our, the daily life that we have to carve out for ourselves, what we perform could perhaps be a fiction. And that's sort of a queer theoretical concern mm-hmm. of Judith Butler and... Mm-hmm. Um, something I'm always considering is performance. And I think that there's something a little bit liberating with the idea of what we perform is perhaps what's as real as what's underneath, even if only for a time being, even if it's temporal, even if it's subject to change. um, I think that there's something a little bit radical about that and allowing yourself that grace to kind of go through those movements and those motions and those fictions.
0: And the way I mean, it was interesting because I was reading your manuscript on my phone. In part because I have a really, <laughs> I have a really big phone.
1: Specifically <laughs> because
0: I read on my phone so much, um, and and that's it's how I do a lot of my reading. Um, and so I'm reading night mode on my phone in night mode. And so it's just like the weird media, the way it was like, I felt like surrounded by your text was like, or the moment where um, your poem says, put down your phone. Um, and I was just like, <laughs>
1: that that's so it's the way that that poem registers like to hear it registers that way on the phone and then also in i, I was having um a friend record me while i was reading that poem mm. and she actually thought like i was addressing the audience and and really saying it and i'm like you know perhaps i am and perhaps i'm not but i wasn't to her right she was taking a video for me but it's it's just the way that that poem in particular lands which i think is really mm fun, but I, I think hearing about how how it translates um on the phone is really interesting because it really is meant to mirror code and text language and it's not just in the way it's dressed up in its language and vernacular and lingo but formally too. So I'm I imagine like moving through it, it might be like scrolling through um hopefully a text with a friend or a dating app conversation or um you know something that feels a little bit digital.
0: Yeah yeah and it's it's kind of an interesting um translation of of night mode into our present media because i mean when i grew up night mode was like what my dad's military goggles like they were like infrared or like everything looked green when you looked at at night like they're amazing um and they were like literally like army issue because he was army and and so now, like, to have different associations to bring something different that's not, like, I don't know, those military goggles seem, like, so predatory and hunterly and, like, you know, <laughs> very, like, creepy. Um, and maybe that's also somewhere in the background for your book, too, because, you know, language does carry carry across. Um, but that you're really creating this space. Like, you are absolutely creating... Um, I want to say both like a unique, but also like a community space. Um, and it's one that you can really enter as a reader um, and see, you know, you can see yourself in it. Like you are so attuned to um, space and the idea of just others in it, in terms of like parties, in terms of, you know, multiple dynamics, in terms of safety, in terms, of, you know, like there's, in mm-hmm. and I think like even the modes of travel, that inter um, you know, the train, the car, the private car, the different, like the different ways the body and the speaker can be in those. um, And that mm-hmm. performance. Yes. Like you brought up performance is always part of that too, and being seen and not being
1: seen. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, I think one of the questions that I try to gesture to the most with the whole project is when is it safe to be visible? When is it safe to be invisible? When, And why do we prefer these different modes? Um, You know, when is it actually like healthy for us? When are we doing it just for a safety measure? Um, And there's no clear answer with that, right? Mm. I think that it's just a gesture towards that. And uh, the book ends with that sometimes what's visible is not made so by light. And I think Mm. that's true. And Mm. I think it's also really interesting going back to what you said about night mode, the goggles, I think of surveillance and that's a whole Mm -hmm. other layer of the book in its own very interesting and a different, but very connected way. Um, And then as you said, the party, like the night mode getting ready for that mode of entering the party space Mm -hmm. or hookup space being on the Mm -hmm. apps and um, also just the very literal night mode on the phone. So it's cool to see that these different ways are, are being framed just at the title.
0: Yeah, and it's so I mean when you bring it up with like dating and entering, like the idea of entering the night mode, um, it's just it's so interesting cuz animals animals behave differently at night and it's like there is this like this element of stealth in what you you were saying about like visibility and there's such a a privilege in being visible and I don't want to get too far ahead, but um, some of what you, some of what your poems do with like the Met and the theme of camp and like the pure, purely visible, like what, what kind of, you know, privilege that is um, to do and the commodification. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. That seems like a really spectacle seems a really important word to, I was thinking when you were talking earlier about how like you wrote the poems and then you started thinking more about like the world building or seeing Blade Runner and thinking about kind of the the situate the situating of, of your poems in like now they're part of, right? Like that's just a larger, like a whole tradition conversation. I was like, oh, I, I want to read that essay. So um I hope if you haven't written it, then you do. Cause um I I think there's we're so lucky to have like poets who can also write about their own work and who can be their own critics like I think Mm. that's really and I I think it's like a really bold thing that we're seeing more of now Um, and it's not like Walt Whitman having to like write a review of his book and then publish you know it's not that but it's like (laughs) Carl Phillips being able to, you know, write a prose text, to my trade is mystery and then use his own poems as examples, which I'm just like, yes, yes. Like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I would love to write that essay <laughs> for sure. I, What's interesting about this book too, as I mentioned before, um, we hopped on to the recording is that I wrote this during my MFA and, and it was my thesis draft. And what that entailed was, um, an annotated bibliography with 20 citations of different references um, that I absolutely do not remember all of now. But it was it was helpful in just sort of thinking all of the different places you can go for resources and inspiration, um, like Blade Runner or in other aspects of my life, like horror movies and music and fashion. And that's why The Met appears as it sort of does, thinking about celebrity culture and luxury, who's afforded it, who isn't. and how in the ways that we perform our campiness, um, is it mm. a little bit more authentic or organic? Um, just these questions in conversation with capitalism. Um, and yeah, and so going back to the MFA piece and the annotated bibliography, I also did have to write a sort of essay, a critical intro or afterward and, I wrote it in the form of the book, actually. So it takes the form of that empty space all over while citing different references. And it sort of just felt maybe like an invitation in. So that's perhaps something I should I should revisit and just think about um what I wrote then, how I contextualized it then, especially in the MFA world mind versus how I might contextualize it now after a few years of writing it and having worked on edits and it being about to be in the world. Um.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up um, your MFA and some of like, how, how faculty helped you um, kind of self-articulate and conceive, you know, kind of conceptualize your book. Um, because I think that those are awesome exercises that anyone can do for their manuscript, you know, to write a 20 source, you know, annotated bibliography where you cite something and you talk about its importance to your work and how it fits in like, and whether that's like an art exhibit or a film or a children's book or whatever it is, um, that's intersecting with your work or that's inspiring your work or that you've been thinking about and then writing an an introduction and, uh, conclusion or or however, writing a prose text that talks about, because I know I've seen so many people, so many poets kind of get upset when they're asked to write prose, um, (laughs) especially especially when it's like for grant applications and you're supposed to articulate your project. And they're literally being asked, and maybe I'm going to catch fire for this, but they're literally being asked for one of the most minimal things, which is like, tell me about your project. Like, give me your elevator speech. Give me your five sentences. Will you tell me like, More about your book, so I can be interested in it, and it's an invitation. And it's—I know it's butt pain. I get it, but it's so good to do. And when you do it, you understand so many more things about yourself and your project. So, while we are much better at creating art than like sitting back on our heels and talking abstractly, because it's a totally different brain space, thought space. Like literally, the difference. I mean, this goes into like trauma therapy too, but the difference between like feeling the feelings. And then observing that you're feeling the feelings and why mm. <laughs> so that like, it's a different part of your brain. It's your abstract. So it's, it's so such good work. And I think we need a lot more practice at it as poets. I'll put it myself in that camp, but.
1: <clears throat> I, I 100% agree. Um, I mean, I work in publicity and publishing. So I feel of course a little bias in my professional work, mm-hmm. Um, but I do understand like the role of being able to, contextualize your work for a larger audience, whether that's a more, maybe a perhaps general reader who doesn't know poetry, but might be interested in the queer themes you're exploring and will feel seen in the work. And that's the way that they're introduced to it. Or someone who is already so of the world and will just be like, oh, you know how to talk about your book and you have a really tight pitch about it. And I mean, pitch isn't always the best word. And I do sort of reject the idea that we always have to like know exactly what it is we're doing. Uh But I do think just knowing who you're in conversation with can even be a jumping point or just some of the themes that you're just interested in. Um, Uh It doesn't have to be this, perfect perfect pitch but mm-hmm. I do think just knowing a little bit of the different functions of how your work is mm-hmm. is functioning is important to articulate for yourself and it will help you along the way for those grant applications for pitching your book if you're going through a publishing route mm-hmm. whichever route you take it's mm-hmm. important it's helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah and I and I do want to acknowledge that um sometimes this labor because that's what it is is more readily asked of, of some folks than others um mm-hmm. i mean even when it comes to i was teaching a poetry class um at duke and um a famous poet was teaching another section of this class um and there was no course description it was just like i don't remember what it was advanced poetry writing or uh, now were in in yeah it must have been advanced um And so I was teaching another section and they were like, oh, do you have your course description? And I was like, oh, I didn't think we needed one. And they're like, they don't need one, but you need one. And I was like, oh, okay. Interesting. (laughs) I was was like, okay, fair, fair, fair. You know, (laughs) I'm like, um, so I do think that some people get away with it, but they've also like had a lifetime typically often a lifetime of like experience in writing and people know them better. So like when you don't, visibility. when people don't know you, um, you have to do more work.
1: Um, Absolutely. And I think that's, that is part of the visibility conversation really. Um, I, I I do think, you know, there is something to be said if you've been writing for a while and you've earned your accolades where maybe you have a lot of awards or you're a tenure professor or you know, the respect should be there. And we have so much to learn from our elder poets. And that is all true. But I also do think a lot of younger folks, a lot of younger poets and marginalized poets are kind of fighting for their spot. And that's that's just something really important to talk about too. And if there's equity and equality in some of these conversations and how we can make equity more possible for poets.
0: Yeah. absolutely and offering i mean i think to this is something i'm i'm i'll say on the on this public podcast i'm often open to reading someone's cv or giving them a little feedback on an abstract they're writing which is you know just a summary of whatever texts you're whether it's a creative or you know an essay or a paper you're trying to it's not just a pitch but it's like to let people know what your piece is about um so uh, I try to make, try to make my labor somewhat accessible, e- even though life does get in the way, but kind of breaking down that gatekeeping of like how you write a grant, like the fact that the NEA application is a huge barrier to people yeah. applying and guess who, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled by the recipients this year in that cohort. It's just incredible. Uh, but I, there are people that aren't, getting to that point because the application itself is difficult
1: yeah and not having the accessibility or just mm-hmm. the mentorship even like someone who can in the community I think that's the other piece of it finding the mm-hmm. that community who can help with things like this um is really important but really difficult I think social mm-hmm. media is its own network and has become a resource for poets and writers to find each other and find these resources and share them where we can but it's still, you know, you're up against a lot. You're up against all the material costs of submission fees when it goes to um, certain applications, residency applications, uh, manuscript submissions, journal submissions, um, which is a whole nother barrier. And so many amazing and brilliant poets will not be able to submit because they financially cannot do so. And that's it's a shame.
0: It is. And I would love to see more pay what you can or tip jar um models because i especially for small presses um which on the one hand you need the money even more than anyone else and on the other <laughs> hand your cost is lower <laughs> like you don't have a, you know you don't have a brick and mortar building you don't have people whose salaries you're paying you who you're not paying is yourself so <laughs> 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 um I do think the money goes. The money goes farther, and you don't have to ask as much. Um, when I see a thirty-five dollar fee, my heart just like that's so much.
1: I And you know, a lot of times, and it's like, there's no shade to any press or publication for for the decision to do so I I am sure internally, hopefully, there's conversations about why it's so steep, but it's often Mm. a lot of times, presses I don't know, or I'm not familiar with. And I, I fear, I know a lot of poets who when they're going into publishing, they're kind of just submitting to anything and everything, because that's maybe the track record they think that will get their work out there. And that's a totally understandable model when you're first coming into it, if you don't have a conversation with another poet, you don't have that community. Um and and that's a sort of shame too, because mm. if you also want to make sure where you're submitting to, if you were to win, that's something to keep in mind. If you were to actually mm. be published with them, do you know what their mission statement is? Do you know who their editors are? And does your work actually fit there? And mm-hmm. do you want to have to have that conversation by the time it's accepted? Mm. Um or was it worth paying the $35 fee for a press maybe you don't know too much about? And um, again, I can understand why someone might be inclined to do so, but it's just, it's a shame that it's so normalized to have these fees, I think, because I think a lot of poets and writers will go their their lives and their their careers thinking mm-hmm. that that's just a normal thing to, to do and consider and budget for.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's alternative routes for sure.
0: yeah. yeah. And part of it, like, I understand, like, I read 260 plus manuscripts this summer, and I understand how much work that is. So, like, $30, I'm like, okay, I kind of understand that. I do want to say on the show that um, if it's like, if you're sending three poems to a magazine, they should not be charging $20. Exactly,
1: exactly that. I just want to point out how not normal and not good that is, because that definitely
0: took me in as a young poet.
1: Same. And it, there's something also like for me, when I came into it, seeing this the fees, I was like, Oh, so this must maybe be a more established place mm. or my work will be in good hands here because if they even find a way to maybe articulate like how that money is, is going to be used, um, that can be helpful, but there, it was just a weird sort of disconnect for me. And it got me as a baby poet um, yeah. for sure. I think, you know, as you said, in terms of small presses, I just think the biggest important thing that presses should keep in mind is the transparency about where the funds go. Um, mm. Having worked in publishing, that's just been a conversation that I've had many times with my colleagues where it's just thinking about how we are going to just let folks know that this actually goes to salaries. This keeps yeah. the press afloat. And it's it's all not just a submission fee, but it's also a donation if you believe in and support the press. Yeah. Um, and... I feel like if that transparency is articulated, there's something a little bit or hopefully helpful and, or more organic and authentic about that process and shed some light on it because I think publishing is uh, that there's a barrier with publishing as well. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Oh yes. And amen. Because I mean, I think a few years back when one of the major indie presses um, crowdfunded or like did a Kickstarter for one of their poets books, a major poet, and it sent ripples of anxiety throughout the Twitterverse because people were like, oh my goodness, if this poet has to have their book like kickstarted, like this is this is scary from this big press that does have a, a fee on their, on their, you know, open reading period in the summer. It was, you know, and, and I think transparency would have been really, really helpful with that because it would have assured people like, oh, you know, we're covering this and this and here's our rationale for why we're we doing it. Or the poet didn't want this to be a burden, or like whatever it was. I think right. maybe, I'm sure it would have been awkward, but it also would have been good information. I think mean, um, it's
1: uncomfortable, but it's helpful info, I think. It's like not not all, I, I think typically, not all of the um money that a press has comes just from their prizes. It, there needs to be grant applications. There needs to be other resources in other ways, especially if you're a nonprofit. And I just think the transparency about where that money goes, how much books actually cost to make, especially books that you're putting a lot into the design and the printing and all of the other challenges that are just going on in publishing since COVID began, um, that transparency is really helpful because people want to know where their money is going. I want to know where my money is going when I'm submitting to a journal or to a a publisher. Um, I just think that transparency is really important no matter how uncomfortable it is.
0: Yeah. And you want people to feel good submitting to you as a press. And and I understand that submitters will ask for everything. Um, and it's also kind of their right. So it's, you know, I think it's like a balance, it's a tension as like a editor publisher to be like, Wow, you wanted all those things with your book? Like that's a that's a lot. Um yep. but also it's yeah. it's their right and like you need to be an awesome advocate for your book and you need to However you, because I, you know, I'll be the first to admit like how you were raised to ask for things or not ask for things always factors in, but um, yeah, ask for things. You should be. Um, just seeing Shelly Wong's tweet this morning about um, her, like someone asking, or, you know, a big five asking to republish one of her poems in an anthology and at no cost. Uh, and she countered with like, no, oh, you're a you're big five, you can afford this and yeah, she got paid a thousand dollars for the poem and I was like yes thank you for modeling that for folks like more of this um and I'm quite sure they didn't want that tweeted um but that was great
1: <laughs> that's, that's how that's that's where the barrier gets dismantled a little bit and mm-hmm. that's how you know that's why twitter has its own network I think no matter how problematic yeah. it is and Elon Musk and um, the whole conversation of um like what discourse on Twitter looks like and how toxic it can really be. I do think there is a role for poets to find each other. I think you and I found each other through, I think, publicity and just reaching out. But at the same time, I think we built a network also online with each other in community with each other on Twitter. Um, and I, I buy new poets all the time because of you, yeah. actually. And Oh, that's awesome. Did, so. <laughs> that's
0: awesome. It is. It is... It- or it was you know, a really good space for that was free, um, for finding people and um, essential to the books I, I come across to read. Kaylin, what was it like submitting um, Night Mode, and how did you choose to go with Everybody Press?
1: This is a really interesting, um, really interesting story. It, it so with Night Mode, I originally had another publisher and they um i don't want to name them they were going through a lot it's a mm-hmm. one person publisher um and i being on the publishing side myself mm-hmm. professionally i think i had a lot of grace and generosity to give um for the whole circumstance but i was kind of assured that the book was going to make it into production even though they decided to close operations and then Right after that, I got a note that was a little bit abrupt and they said that they couldn't take it on just because they felt the book deserved better and that they were shutting down even earlier. And it, Ugh. I kind of felt it in my gut that that was the case. I, there was minimal communication throughout the whole like eight months or so. And I was emailing oh. and trying to communicate about it. And so, again, it's I'm not trying to like be shady at them or put any... Totally any ill faith towards their, their name or anything, because this person who runs the press is really fabulous. And I know it just wasn't in the headspace to run the press anymore. And that's Mm -hmm. very fair. And I think very hard to acknowledge and admit when you're at your limit. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough because I'm friends with the folks at everybody press, they're doing my second book, Iconic Cross, And we just spitballed options. And I just told them about what was going on and they were just like, we'll keep it and we'll keep it on track. Um, we'll just have it for when it was going to publish, which I think this conversation happened maybe in November, and the book is scheduled for oh March. Gosh. So that's it was amazing. like, let's let's do this, let's go right now. That's amazing. Yeah, it it was mm.
0: a very
1: I, it was a very um, slippery slope, highs mm. and lows, peaks and valleys. But I think that's often how it can go in publishing, especially when you go a small press route. It's part of the risk that you take, but you believe in the presses that you submit to, hopefully, as we've said. And um, I feel very fortunate with everybody press. I think they put a lot of care into the book in all aspects. And the layout, I mean, is with with white space and forum being so much of it, they've just done such a stellar job that it blows me away.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I I know I said this to you before we started recording, but when I opened it up and, you know, as an editor and publisher, I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. Like The layout. I mean, it's such care and attention and, you know, it just shows everywhere. And I mean, you've got this, this comes back to kind of a question of form. You have multiple forms, you know, even though the, the, I could definitely think of night mode as a book length poem in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it does have separate poems, but they really, they really flow together. And meanwhile, they're, they're visually separated in, in terms of design. They're separated. Um, but that's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And um, I don't know what they call it, but when a page is, has like the full print bleed, um, is yes. just the title pages.
1: Yes, I don't I I don't know the technical <laughs> term right now either, but yes, yeah.
0: It, it's beautiful. It's so striking. I mean, somehow it really really fits with like well, it's cool, right? Because like the idea of binary has to be somewhere around the idea of cyborg and um uh, you know, analog, like it's, it's in that language and at the same time, your book is so obviously and beautifully non-binary. Um, and so like that, that whole tension throughout, um, somewhere, with the, somewhere with the black and the white and the coloring, you, you're getting that as well.
1: Mm. oh that's so great to hear that's that's not even something i really fully thought about too much as like a conscious decision but i'm sure it was an unconscious one for sure (laughs) tackling the binaries i think you know formally in its Mm -hmm. content and then even in the poem i read thinking about what a cyborg is what a bot is um is there a difference what is the point of Mm -hmm. asserting that there is one um and yeah, it goes back to that world building and conceptualizing, I think, that I had to do as I wrote the book. And um, I mentioned this to you before we began recording, but I, while writing it in my MFA, it's when I socially transitioned and sort of started to realize and come to terms with that I am non-binary and how I went about it outwardly. So as I think I, it's in one of the poems I first posted on my story on Instagram that I was using they, them pronouns. And I just kind of took note of who saw it like visually like who i saw viewed the story and then who actually made the shift or chatted with me about it um and i know you know in retrospect it's not the same as having a conversation with a person Mm one-on-one and that's not how i would do it now but my expectations back then i try to give myself a little generosity and grace um where it was painful it was hard and that was just something i kind of had to navigate and i was doing so in the writing of the book itself um, and I think in that way the book is exactly you're exactly right. It's a book length sort of serial poem, um, broken up into five different sections, but they're all in conversation with each other. Uh, maybe at different timelines, maybe in different spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's you know making grinder a very literal world, um, or Instagram, or the party, or you're going in person to a date at a bar. Um, mm-hmm. kind of blurring the line between what space is actually what, and yeah, just a gesture at what this fluidity can look like and why it's there, and yeah. also acknowledging the pain behind it
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yes, and I'm thinking about, I just think your epigraphs are so gorgeous, and I'm um, pertinent, and they just kind of really I'm. Um, Orient the reader towards your text um, in really exciting ways, especially right next to each other. Though I mean, so I, you have your first is um, "How to Become a New Glitch: A New Disruption" from Andrea Abia Karam. Um, extra transmission, extra transmission. I want to, <laughs> um, yeah. and then what I lack is myself from Susan Howe Depth. And I think even just invoking like depth too, um, I think that's so incredible, right? Because um, the language of like trans or across or like it's almost like this like skimming surface, like it can sound like it's um, so immediate or so, but then the idea of depth that there are so, there's so much like transness and depth too um, in just in terms of, um, oh, I don't know. I, I'm thinking about your line where you talk about where your poem, the body is theory, and I don't have the page in front of me at the moment and and would love to hear you read from this. Um, But before you do, I was thinking about this line and, you know, the body is theory and also as praxis, right. And that queer theory is, is it's inseparable from queer praxis. Um, Especially when you think about visibility and performance and, um, I mean, it's so it's it's so interesting to me because part of my like um, non-binary performance is that I perform less. Like, I take mm-hmm. off jewelry. I don't wear makeup. I, you know, like I have to do so much less. Um, and it's it's so it's so weird for me to think about. Um, and it was so hard to like figure out like what it was for me, but um. Yeah, I think I think that's being read being read as theory and being read as as praxis too by others is is so weird because you're also a, a human being body right you're like a human um, sure. or a cyborg um, yeah. <laughs> 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 which is rad um, is there is sorry I know I just said a lot um is there a question that come up for you or a comment or did you want to read some from your poem
1: yeah, I'm I'm happy to read from this poem for sure. I I think what was interesting for me as I wrote this one is I knew it's kind of the most fun, but there's definitely this, like, difficult pain undergirding the speaker. It it was written as if um, you're at a pregame right before you're going to a party, and it's as if the speaker is speaking to one of their close friends and someone you're in community with and queer community with. Um, definitely like a metropolitan New York based sort of poem Um, and as I was writing it, all the movements that happened are pretty swift and sharp and they even took me by surprise and had to do a lot of like cutting and scaling back Mm -hmm. just to get it to a Mm -hmm. place that didn't feel too raucous Um, Mm -hmm. not that I'm against being too raucous but I did want the, the pieces that you actually spoke about and addressed to be legible thinking about the body as theory and um, that going back to the faith element, very literally, like the cyborg angel um image that's in the poem. Um, I'm happy to just read the poem and yeah, yes. okay. <laughs> Put your phone down for a sec, oh my God, hey, bitch, you look good, Sis. Have you had something to drink? Come in? Come in. You've got gloss on your lips. A compliment for your black jacket. Toss it. Toss it. Your lipstick, so chic. Chic. How long did it take to get ready? Yeah, you look so good. Do you think we'll be on the list? Like we were promised? the promoter. I think he's new to the city, but he turns it. Turns it. So I was thinking, if we take a car to the party, we'll have enough time for a couple more drinks. Or should we take the train? I get nervous taking the train when I look like this. I mean, I mean, I like to look like this, but I don't always like being looked at like this. You know what I mean? Anyway, did you see that tweet I sent you earlier? Someone tweeted, God is trans. Like, it was a statement, I guess, but wouldn't God have to have been born to be assigned gender to begin with? Christ's pronouns were Gucci, Gucci. Dripping in Swarovski. LOL, oh my God, wait. Remember last weekend when we went out for a smoke break after the drag show? That drunk girl told us that story about the angel that fell without gender and no one's sure where it might've landed. I wonder if the girl who was the one who came up with it or who else might've wrote it. Put your phone down for a sec. The story reminded me of when I posted on my story that I wanted everyone to use gender neutral pronouns for me. No one really did. It's okay, I get it, I get it. It's hard to believe how much can happen between one party and the next. Anyway, another drink, another drink. You really do look so good. Like, where did you get your earrings? Usually I find that shape tacky, but in this case, it's so campy. Which reminds me, can we talk about when the Metropolitan Museum chose camp as the theme for the Met Gala? Like, hello, the Met commodified camp. Everyone ate that shit up. Everyone gapped over it because of idol worship. Like, hello, the Met is co-opting queer thought and the looks weren't even that good, but. I guess anyone with that much wealth could never really understand camp to begin with. Anyway, have you been reading any theory lately? I just revisited a cyborg manifesto. The way Donna Haraway points us towards the chimera reminds me of that story, the angel that fell without gender, which made me remember the time I had a professor say, queer theory is dead said she went to the funeral, but the whole time I was wondering what she was wearing as she wept next to the casket. Versace, 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 Versace. Queer theory is not dead. Queer theory not dead. Queer theory my body, my body in this dress on the dance floor getting my shit rocked. The museum in the corner of the room with the bear taking notes. Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is, I'm tired of reckoning with all of myself depending on the space I'm in. Come on, come near me. If there's going to be multiple versions of me, don't you think I should start referring to myself as plural, as singular? Like I did that one time on my story. they they hey. It could be worth bringing up again but it's easier to put on makeup. Tutorials taught me how to do a cat eye. Oh my God, wait, it's that late? Let me get you another drink. I think you need another drink. You've got gloss on your lips. Glossy, glossy, lip, lip. Put your phone down for a sec. Or do you need to get that? Oh, you should reply, he's sexy, sexy. He tried to hook up with me at the summer party on the rooftop, the one with a jacuzzi. As we got out from the tub, he was drying himself off and I couldn't stop thinking about how his body looked like the same kind of institutions I'm indebted to. And I wondered, what makes a cis man a cis man? What makes masculinity? How does a man know he's achieved it? Anyway, Sorry, the vibe is just so good right now. I'm just rocking with it. Nights out are fun. Me love it, glitzy glitzy. Getting down at the party. I just wish I knew how to show everyone at the function I'm a scholar with my body. I want them to know how much I've sacrificed. That this was all worth something. Since my body is theory, nothing is prescribed. Come on, come near me. I wanna let you in on a secret. I think I might be the angel that fell without gender and upon landing, I became a cyborg to keep up with the times. The only trace of me will be showing face at the party, wearing this Gucci Gucci, dripping in Swarovski. Or maybe this poem will be my only record after some curator daddy locates my body, hangs me up in a big glass display with my wings separated from my back for whoever pays to see it. It'll be the kind of party so exclusive, there's not even a list. You know what I mean? Put your phone down for a sec. Put your phone down. Oh, oh, you're calling the car. Oh, let me get my things. Give me a second to collect my things.
0: Thank you. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and because the poem is, well, first of all, I think a lot about stream of consciousness when I see the form because it's um, lines with visual cesera. So like those breaks in the, in like the page and the white across the page. And so it kind of fills the page with a prose frame, but then it's got these long lines and they're the, all the, you know, the, the breaks and the music. Right. Um, But I do think there's something for me when I write in a similar form that it just likes, it lets everything in, like just, it opens it up. And instead of, I think when you're writing in shorter lines and it's like, what am I not saying? What am I not saying? And instead, it's like, here it is. Here. And so for a party and for like you think of laughter and noise and gossip and like everything, it just it like it takes up the space, right? Um, and I love, I love that it does that. Um, and it goes to some like really serious places while it does that. And I think it's just like this capacious form. Um, and it's just it works beautifully, I think, um, for conversation and for. Um, you know, you mentioned narrative earlier, but like telling a story too.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty <laughs> incredible. Um, thank you, thank you so much. I think this is the one that I get the most theatrical. I was never a theater kid, but performing, I feel like, is an activation of it, which is really funny when you think about the theme of performance throughout the whole book, but especially in this poem too.
0: You know, I was thinking a lot about Tommy Pico, um, yeah, and Tommy's character Teeb's. Um, and especially like at the very beginning of when your book opens. Um, you know, I had I, I was thinking about IRL by, by Tommy and some of the just really cool like the phone abbreviations or phone spell like how we think about text spellings, and again like letting that media come into the poem, which sometimes. People can be very guarded about, right? Like, oh, they don't, they don't want that in their poem, right? Um, and right from the get go, your book says, no, I didn't want that. I mean, obviously your title, but um so I think there's like this whole, like there is this tradition of like, what is the vernacular now? Because vernaculars change. And um, like I think A.R. Ammons, right, who's like a in a a major influence um for Tommy Pico. A.R. Ammons would, I would love, I'd love to see what Ammons would do with like texting now. Um, but, you know, we had, instead we have new poets um, and poets like you who are publishing and doing um, these incredible new things with language um, and where language is at now in the present. Um, and that's so exciting. Um, and the angel narrative, the falling angel narrative i find really really fascinating because right in milton when an angel falls it's is satan um the sexiest of all the angels as we know from reading many (laughs) lucifer texts and graphic novels and shows like we've been educated (laughs) i mean that's in milton too obviously (laughs) but also to keep calling an angel an angel after it's fallen right um Mm. And I mentioned to you Wings of Desire as like a film that came up for me. Um and, and that's you know, it's kind of a precursor to what's that film? Is it City of Angels or City of Yeah, there's one. There's like a more modern, it's not as good, of course. Um <laughs> Wings of Desire is very like classic film, Angel falling into Berlin, falling in love with a dancer, mm. um, selling armor to pay for living, you know, shiny gold armor. Of course, it's black and white, so you can just got to imagine that part. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, there are other poets thinking about angel narratives, and I specifically think about Shane McCrae, who, again, mm. is a poet who's just at the edge of what language can do, and also thinking about kind of glitches and ruptures, right, the way your text is, um, sonically, narratively. And so I think that's like a really cool connection. And, um, are there other poets for you that, that are even more that you consider like influences and kind of engaged in, in informing, um, night mode?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I already mentioned our Erica Doyle's proxy, and that was, I think, especially formally, but also kind of addressing some of the erotics in the poetics. Um, but another one is, Andrea Avikaram, who we also mentioned. Extra Transmission, when I first read that book, um, it's funny because they were my mentor while I was an intern and they bought books. And so that's how I got into publicity, thanks to them. So I have this really special relationship with them on so many different levels. Um, But their book, Extra Transmission, is really incredible and also has a cyborg narrative throughout. And they're kind of thinking about it more in the context of war and trauma and PTSD. And there's a politics to it that I think is is, there's overlap, but it's also very different Mm -hmm. um, and very exciting. Um, So I definitely recommend everyone check out that project. But even their second book, their follow up, Villainy, they they are very uncompromising in this like revenge poetics that I think they're forging. And the idea of a poem being a sort of site for revenge on the state, Mm -hmm. Um, a poem, the the possibility of a poem in terms of its politics and its theory um, is a poem political. How does it land? These are all questions that I have and I think about constantly. And I think Andrew's work really helps guide me in some of those Mm -hmm conversations and, and some of that thinking um, especially mm-hmm. for my own work
0: thank you for mentioning those texts um in of which i've read and i'm really excited to now and i'll include links in our show notes so people can click and and um, find their own copies and also on our website pages because um, that's just i think again like community formation creating the text for me it's like always about a family of text and like the text i want to kind of bring around, whether it's a a project I'm writing or a reading obsession. Like I love doing that. Um, reading every book, a book mentions is like how you get even more into the book. Right. So
1: absolutely
0: like reading cyborg manifesto, like that's part of, of night mode, um, too. So, and I, it's, it's so political and it's, um, to name to name names and text and to cite like i always think citation is so political and like cuz you're you're intentionally creating your community of text and it's it's most often political when it's not done and when you read someone and you're like why didn't you cite this this seems like so important to you or like a really famous example for me in my history is like Alistair McIntyre never citing who's a british philosopher never citing Iris Murdoch um or very mm. briefly, even though her work was so important, and she's such uh, a queer, totally gender queer um, writer and um, novelist and thinker, and so yeah, I think about those. But you know, that's the that's the beauty of creating our own spaces and text, and kind of populating them and peopling them, and um, and I,
1: yeah. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, I think the, the idea of citation within a poem is always really interesting because there's so many routes you can go. You can do like a footnote in the poem and that has its own formal function and content function. I think what was fun about doing it this way in this poem is it's like, would I bring up a cyborg manifesto in a convo at a pregame at a party? I think I would. But also <laughs> it's just like it's such a it's it's such a serious and like very important text right Mm -hmm. and it's it's so relevant to the conversation Mm -hmm. that's actually happening but i think a lot of the time when queer folks are having conversations like this about gender and their experience with identity and navigating it all of these different theoretical texts other sources are in the back of their minds for it but it Mm -hmm. doesn't always like land that way or they're not always directly citing it in the conversation itself um i think doing it in the poem was a way for me to just It was sort of how do I reconcile with all of the different versions of myself Mm -hmm. depending on the space that I'm in. And I guess it was sort of an attempt to do so within the poem. So Mm -hmm. taking that theory that is very Mm -hmm. much thinking about why I perform the gender the way that I do, um, why I I might be scared to go on the train looking a certain way after a certain hour, um, why I care about the club and what are the politics of the club and who has Mm -hmm. access to it. Megala, take down Gucci, Gucci, Christ, all of these different things that I'm actively thinking about. It is that stream of consciousness, and mm-hmm. I wanted it to be as conversational as possible, but also kind of funny. It's like that citation's a little bit funny in its own way, but it it I hope it lands, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I went some. I think I went to a poetry reading in the summer, and um, I I saw someone from my graduate program, and we were talking for a minute. And we just got very quickly got into like Wittgenstein and notebooks. And I was like, oh yeah, this is the kind of party I want to be at. This is <laughs> like when you're like, the conversation is so good so quickly. <laughs> like, We're just um,
1: comfortable. And yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I also think it's like what you do with the language of theory and whether it's the body is theory, queer theory. And obviously there's like a ton of interlap overlap there. Interlap. That was interesting. Um, but since my body is theory, nothing is prescribed. Um, and I just think that's like an incredible way of thinking about theory. Um, that it's about possibility and mm. it's about imagination and creation. And it's, it's so much. Cause I mean, I think I, I know a lot of professors who like literally talk about theory, like it's like a meat grinder. Like I've literally heard people say this in the classroom and like you take a text and you shove it through like a critical lens and it like goes through a meet. And, and I think that kind of denigrating of theory, I'm, I mean, and who is doing it right. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and then to say like, Oh, like query's dead or we're not, you know, what is uh a- yeah, Can
1: I tell you this story about Please. that? Actually that line. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so I, I was in um, undergrad and I was invited by the capstone, the professor who led or the director of the um, general women's studies program which was one of my um, double majors, I was invited into a conversation about a queer studies minor and potential major um, because it was obviously something I was thinking about even then. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think a lot of the professors in the room were just thinking about it so literally, as in there maybe are no queer theorists like actively writing today, which is also not necessarily true, but they were just talking about it so literally. And I was just kind of like, but, but you don't see the way that we are all performing in this room, even in praxis about this. Like you you even just said you wept next to the casket, which is one of the campiest things I've ever heard in my life while talking about queer theory being dead. And I get it's, you know, maybe maybe the conversation had to shift away from, okay, we're not just going to talk about like actual queer theorists. We're not just going to talk about like Truth butler or Cruising Utopia or, you know, these very central important texts. Um, We're also going to talk about praxis and like, how we can take this thought into action and mm-hmm. that's kind of the route i was trying to take it um and i think in this poem in itself i i think i'm trying to do a theorizing of my own you know mm-hmm. that, it's, a, it's an attempt <laughs> it's an attempt for sure but i yeah. i always find that whenever i read that part i always laugh because <laughs> it brings me back
0: yeah and i mean i was thinking while reading Night Mode, you know, that's what art does. It embodies. And so that like imaginative embodied space, that's always going to be about performance. And and so it's like, it's so cool that you engage theory in this way, because I think it it is easier for a reader to engage theory like that their engagement is just rewarded by yours because they're able to like imagine and you know you you see scenes you hear conversations you you're in the classroom when you know a quote-unquote authority is speaking and then there's you know and then you've got your speaker and um and then like the cyborg narration or thinking about the fallen falling angel narrative like it's just you know i think that's like the beauty of of poetry that it doesn't have to like, it can, but it doesn't have to make really big claims because it is the claim, like just itself. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's like, you were saying earlier, that's the thing that like an artist might necessarily, might not necessarily need or have to do, which is explain your work. Like, and because a lot of our work, Kind of goes past explaining and you know i mentioned carl phillips earlier i think he'd be the first one to be like you know mystery is mm. part of it mm-hmm. um but then we're all kind of like dancing around that mystery in our own work as we like make structures around it because we do
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah yeah mm. I, I i think that's also part of just thinking about the book as a sort of serial Book length poem and how that even kind of functions on its own level. Where to to in in helping to write this, I had to think about them kind of like they were fiction stories. Like I was like, what is the plot or what would the plot be? And then what am I stripping away? Like I'll do this active mapping outside of the text in my notebook on my phones app where I'm I'm trying to define for myself when and where I'm using code, what does it mean? It was a conversation I had with my editor as well, where we were like, let's just go through every time you use these coded words to make sure that throughout the whole text, like, if they mean the same thing, is that your intention? And if they're different, does that mean the same? Is is that good? Like, is that your intention? Just be intentional with each place you're using these coded language and coded words, um, which was tremendously helpful. Um, But I also think there is something provocative and important about that act of mystery like leaving it in you know I want there to be a narrative that is accessible and that you can follow and I also want there to be parts where hopefully the reader will be like I have no idea what's going on but I I might now be down for the ride you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some pretty strange things that happen I think in that poem pinking that's like the gut of the manuscript and was the most painful poem to write probably I've ever written because I think that's where I was really addressing most clearly like the trauma of navigating gender identity, especially in context um, with dating and with other men and, you know, being like underage queer person, dating older queer people and trying to work through those experiences. But how all of you know something as fun as this, where it has its undergirding stories and fable-like qualities, can also exist with something as a little bit more literal or precise or glitchy or whatever the word is. Um, Maybe visceral is the best word, where it just feels like a punch in the gut, and that was my intention with pinking. Versus, it's all about intention, I think, and sequencing, and yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, thank you for. I mean, I just think it's a a gorgeous text. And um, I think it's so night mode is so full of um, delight and surprise. And, um, and also there's like, you know, depth came up earlier. There's a lot of shadow and uncertainty and I'm thinking about safety. And I mean, there's so much in it. um, And I'm just really excited for readers and I would ask you now about Iconoclast but I think what I'd rather do is have you back on the show for to talk about Iconoclast when it comes out next year. Oh, I would love
1: that. <laughs> I, would, I would be so honored.
0: Return guest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but thank you so much for coming in t- talking about Night Mode and reading your incredible poems and we'll make sure everyone has links to um it's it's pre-order now. Yes.
1: When- yeah.
0: When is publication?
1: Publication date is March 8th. Great. So if you're also at AWP, I will be there. <laughs> so awesome. yeah, can sign books if anyone is there. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: So if you're listening to this episode before March 8th, then please pre-order. And um, thank you so much, Kaylin.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for your generosity in reading the text and just your attention and care. And it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be in community and conversation with you. Oh,
0: thank you. Pleasure is mine.